everyone. I've been up here already this morning with my peaceful child, peaceful squirming child. Um, we're coming to, my name's Josh, by the way, if you're visiting, it's really great to have you. We're coming to the end of a, a series uh, this morning uh, that we've been doing over the course of more than a few months, actually, in, in fits and starts. And it's been on the book of John's Revelation. So a book that does deal um, with the future. Uh, and, and I think it's been a good journey for us because it, it's been about more than just what the book says. It's been about how we read scripture generally. And I've found it really f- fruitful. I, I hope that you can say the same. Um, but it's time to, to move on to the next thing. I've joked throughout that uh, we want to finish the series before Jesus does return. And at the moment, we're on track. We'll see how we go over the next half hour. So I'm going to um, speak about a few things this morning to make sense of uh, the, the second last chapter of this book. Um, I could really have touched down in, in a variety of places to try and sort of wrap Revelation up, but I've chosen six verses in the 21st chapter. And to make some sense of these six verses and, and sort of how Revelation touches down generally... I want to take a little bit of time to talk to you this morning about this Renaissance painting. About the fact that it's not just that we should, as Christians, expect the return of Christ, but that we should expect the fulfilment of something important. So I'll unpack that a little bit in a moment. We're going to talk, again, I've used this image across the course of this series at least once, a little bit about how time works in the book of Revelation. And specifically, I'm going to introduce you to a term that you do not have to remember. (laughs) Just, it would be great if you remembered what it meant. And so that term is prolepsis, And then in an effort to be somewhat practical for this message to touch down somewhere, I'm going to talk to you about, even if you don't remember what this term means, uh, what you should do about it. Okay, and basically this will take us through three big points. One, that Jesus is our interpretive key for this text. That uh, God... um, has said certain things are good and that our reading as Christians, our understanding as Christians means that we are to consider the things that God has called good as eternally good. And thirdly, that what God values into eternity, we in response should value in the present. So I think we can do that in the time that we have this morning. Um, And I'll just read the text to you before we get into it. Here it is, Revelation 21, 1 to 6, and I'm working with the NIV this morning. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself 
will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. I think one of the things that we have had bear out for us as, we, as we've travelled through this book together is that to understand it, to make sense of this really, frankly speaking, strange book, we need to keep Jesus at the centre. And I would suggest that we need to do the same thing this morning for the passage that we're looking at. Jesus should be our interpretive key. It put me in mind of this famous Renaissance painting, actually. And um, if you have the opportunity to go to Europe sometime and look at this painting, you'll see that there are details which can draw you in. It might be a little difficult to see at the moment from where you sit, but just go with me here for a second. A lot of speculation has taken place around what is going on in the details of this painting. Some have wondered whether this was in fact a sort of an idealised landscape. Some have suggested that actually this place exists somewhere near where the artist did his work. But if you were to spend a lot of time looking at this painting, there's something which sort of uh, will capture your attention in the foreground that I'll speak about in a moment. But there are also some quite evocative details around the edge that people who've spent some time with this painting find themselves drawn into. The reason why I thought of this painting is because I feel like it's a little bit like the book of Revelation that we've been through together, in that as much as there might be to look at and to wonder about at what's going on in the details of this painting, we cannot move past the subject of this painting if we ultimately want to make sense of it. And I wonder if over the years, in our experience with the church as Christians, we might have been drawn into some of the details of the book of Revelation at the cost of truly understanding and engaging with the subject. If you didn't quite catch what was going on there, we're talking about the same painting. To read Revelation is to read what John calls a revelation of Jesus Christ. I am only human and I found the details interesting. Who are Gog and Magog? Who's the Antichrist? What's the mark of the beast? Of course, that stuff's compelling. But should be no 
more compelling, nowhere near as compelling as the person whom the book is actually about. This um, image here is a composite that a Dutch artist put together. He fed a bunch of paintings of images of people from around the time of Christ into a computer and it produced the AI, this image of what Christ might have looked like. Of course, we don't know what Jesus looked like. There's a good chance he looked more like this than many of the images that we see. John perhaps understands that the hearers of his revelation didn't have a picture of Jesus. They might have assumed what he looked like as a first century Palestinian Jew. They probably knew someone like that. He takes us past that though, doesn't he? And he invites us to see Jesus in a particular manner, more than any other way in the book of Revelation. John asks us to see the one who is worthy to oversee the culmination of history, the little lamb. This speaks, as we've explored together, to the nature of Christ as king, the nature of his power, the nature of his kingdom, the one who, for the love of the world, would come as a tiny child, would live a life that should and could perhaps have passed in relative obscurity in the backwaters of Israel, ultimately to lay his life down for those, even those who would persecute him. What we have an image of here in Revelation chapter 1 is what we should look forward to. If scripture means anything to us at all, John is painting a picture that lands here in chapter 21 of what we anticipate with joy and hope. A new heaven and a new earth. To keep Christ as the interpretive key when we read this, I think is extremely useful. And I wonder if you've connected these dots, if you've done this. Here, the Apostle Paul, writing to the believers in the city of Corinth, says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation, which I suggest John has just been talking about, has come and the old has gone. Colossians talks about Jesus as the firstborn from among the dead. I think there's something key for us in understanding John's vision here, in understanding the mystery of what is to come, revealed in the nature of Christ from the moment of his resurrection onwards. Christian tradition has wrestled with what the future holds for us. And it's understandable because we just don't know to such a great degree. You know, we don't um, have that experience of what lies on the other side until we have it. But there are some interesting clues here. Sometimes Christianity has stressed the difference of what is to come. 
And we might look to resurrection appearances of Jesus for evidence of that in the fact that he walks with those disciples to Emmaus. And he walks for so long without them recognising who he is until a particular moment when it's illuminated. I wonder if it's a little bit like seeing the Mona Lisa against a different background. I know that teachers, I'm looking at Rob Burgess, struggle with this as a sort of um, trap of their profession. They spend important time with thousands of people across the course of their career. And maybe you've had this experience, I know Rob definitely would have had it, where you see someone that you know, (laughs) but you see them out of context. And you can't quite place them. It's like your brain's just short-circuiting a little bit until you see those hills of Tuscany and you go, Mona Lisa, I taught you art. Am I mixing things up a little bit too much here? Perhaps I am. But you know what I'm saying. There's, There's obviously something different about Jesus if his disciples don't immediately recognize him. Perhaps it's the context that they're seeing him in. But maybe it's useful, and I think the Christian tradition has found it useful, to consider for the sake of everything that's wrong in this world, what comes next (laughs) must be somehow pretty different. Nevertheless, we think about some of these other resurrection appearances. Jesus speaking to Thomas in the 20th chapter of John, put your finger here, see my hands, speaking of the nail wounds, reach out your hand and put it into my side. I also love the story from John's Gospel in the next chapter where it seems like Jesus values breakfast enough though he hasn't seen his disciples who've been hanging out for him uh, or, you know, I mean, it's a big deal that he returns to them and he cooks them breakfast on the shore. These evidences and other evidences from the Gospel speak to me about a kind of continuity between this world and the world to come. Surely we need to hope that it'll be better somehow. But there is, I believe, in the witnesses to Jesus's resurrected life, a connection. Even in his eternal body, he is human. Somehow, mysteriously, he still bears the marks of his death. But somehow there is a significant improvement. In John's revelation here in chapter 21, John talks about the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And Joy preached so compellingly just a few weeks ago about the bride and the relationship of the bride, God's people, to Christ as the bridegroom. But we see from an improved place, from heaven, the city, which is the centre of the new creation, being established in the world. And so the point I want to make here is if we are to make sense of the book of Revelation, and I hope that you continue to grapple with it as you journey through your life, because as we mentioned right at the beginning... Scripture says there's a blessing in grappling with it, tricky as it is, that we remember that we need to keep Jesus front and centre. The image that John gives us 
primarily is the king who was a little lamb willing to die for his love of the world. And that this morning I want to suggest and have suggested there's something significant about keeping his humanity in mind. What we love about this world, if we've had any good experience of it at all, is what Jesus would love. He wants to laugh with us. He wants to eat with us. He wants to hear music, perhaps even dance. That might be a little bit confronting for us as Australian males. The scripture points us to a significant sense of continuity. You know, it's possible... And in fact, we know it happens that there are people who have an experience of this life who might be able to say they think there's nothing good. <laughs> you know, people who, who, who face terrible circumstances, who've, who've gone through things which make it impossible for them to, to appreciate the goodness of the world. I suggest that even that points to <laughs> the goodness of the world. The sense that we might have of despair that things aren't the way they should be implicitly points to the fact that there is a way that things should be. We are wired as humans for the goodness of life, the goodness of the world. The second point that I want to draw out of this passage this morning is that what God has said is good, is eternally good. I don't know if you've thought about the fact that Christ resurrected, perfected, the firstborn of the new creation, the firstborn from the dead, has something of a body, enough of a body that he eats breakfast, enough of a body that he would invite his friend to stick his fingers into the wounds in his side. God, at the very outset of Scripture, looks at what he creates and calls it good. I hope you've picked up across the course of this series on Revelation, that I really want to push back against a view of the end of the world that says somehow this world doesn't really matter because God is going to get rid of it. I just don't see that in Scripture. And that's what we're going to take a moment to look at here. I think for that reason, it's biblical it's scriptural to go beyond an expectation of simply the return of Christ and think about the ways that scripture points to the fulfillment of the work that God is doing in Christ into creation at the end of time then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. It's suggested that that reference to there not being a sea, I used to despair at that as someone who loved surfing as a child, as a young man, but is um, a reference to in the ancient world the sea was sort of seen to be the realm of the dead. If you think about Revelation, all the monsters come out of the sea. So it's figurative language. Interestingly, the, the word there for first heaven and first earth in Greek is proto. So um, it, it, it suggests that there is something coming after it which is perhaps connected to it. Um, we might think about the way that, you know, uh, cars have prototypes. Um, hopefully, once it hits the road, it's better 
than it was when it was just in the mind of the planner. They test it, they run it around the Nuremberg circuit, they see that it works before they give it birth. There's this sense, I would suggest, that creation now, as wonderful as it can be, is something of a foretaste to the fulfilment which God has in mind for the creation. So a connection between the first heaven and the first earth and the new heaven and the new earth. It goes on in verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now amongst the people and he will dwell with them. To read this closely, I think to read this in mind of Christ as the interpretive key should prompt us to ask the question, well, doesn't God already dwell with us? Doesn't he? He does. John is saying something has been started in creation. Something has been started in Christ in the work of his life, in his death and resurrection, which is yet to come to fulfilment. And at this time, in his vision, is coming to fulfilment. He is making all things new. God has dwelt with us. If we read the Old Testament, you'll know that first he dwells in a tent, then a temple, amazingly, as a baby, and then a man... God dwells with us in the person of Christ. The New Testament speaks in many places about the fact that now God dwells amongst the communion of the saints, the company of the Spirit, his people, the church, which is his body. The vision that John gives us is that in a final and complete sense, God will indwell the whole of creation. What we now see in part, we will then know in full. Where we experience the inbreaking of the life of the Spirit in each of our lives, where we see good things happen like uh, the six years free from cancer, finding homeless people homes, when those things happen, we're tasting something which is going to happen in fullness. This is the last verse of the section that I'm looking at and coming towards a bit of a conclusion this morning. To the thirsty, it says in verse 6, and this is God speaking, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Familiar words, aren't they? God has dwelt amongst us. He intends to dwell more fully. the final point that I'm going to make briefly. What I think this passage forces us to reckon with, and this might even fly in the face of some of the sort of implicit theology that we've grown up with, the idea that God doesn't value this world, that he's going to, it's all going to go up in flames and he's going to take us off to heaven. I was reading this passage again, thinking about the pearly gates in this chapter. The pearly gates are here in this vision. So the pearly gates are in the New Jerusalem which comes down from heaven into the earth. It's funny how our theology can be shaped, I think it's often by cartoons, right? Probably Gary Larson 
Gary Larson's in the first, in, if Dante was to rewrite uh, his, his picture of hell, Gary Larson might be in the first circle for misleading us in terms of our understanding of heaven. That's a far side cartoon thing. Anyway, <laughs> if you know, you know. Is that what they say? <laughs> so what God values into eternity, we need to value into the present. And this is this word, you can forget it, but I want you to keep the concept, prolepsis. <laughs> We've talked about the fact that time works a bit different in Revelation, and this is an example of it. Here's a quote that I'll read to, read to you quickly just so that we get through this. Uh, German theologian of the last century, Jürgen Moltmann, said this, explaining this concept of prolepsis. What can I hope for? The question, what can I hope for, always affects the various choices of action open to us in response to the question, what should I do? It's clunky because it's translated from German, but it comes a little clearer. We become active in this world, Maltman says, insofar as we hope and we hope in so far as we can see into the sphere of future possibilities. We undertake that which we believe to be possible. If, for example, we hope that the world will continue to be as it is now, we shall keep things as they are. If we hope for an alternative future, we shall already change things now as far as possible in accordance with that. This is the substance of hope that the Christian tradition speaks of, that scripture reveals to us. It gives us <laughs> hope that the world will not always be broken as it is, will not always be dysfunctional as it is, that there will not always be pain and suffering such as we experience them, that this is not the way that things are supposed to be. Prolepsis then means the repre representation or assumption of a future act or development as if it presently existed. Anticipation that determines the present. I'm going to get the band up here in a moment. Or now, when I, in a moment, this being the moment. Um, we're going to take communion to, to finish with. Hopefully, you've all got... Uh, the elements. There was a, um, an article that came out uh, this weekend by the Walkley Award winning journalist Jane Carrow. I don't know if anyone saw it. And um, Jane Carrow was talking about, I mean, she can be, she's a journalist, she puts her opinions out there in a way that's compelling, that people want to read them. But she was, she was talking about her displeasure um, that there are Christian school chaplains in state schools. And um, I'm going to put an opinion out there that might be slightly controversial uh, for a pastor, but you know what? I actually really understand where she's coming from. As a, as a non-Christian, I kind of go, yeah. I, I mean, if the shoe's on the other foot, right, we, 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 could, we could understand why she might have some questions about why is it that in our public schools, which are supposed to be secular, there's like 
there's, there's Christians who are on mission, basically. We, we like to pretend that Christian chaplains aren't on mission. And I think there's some appropriate sort of protocols around how they engage with students and that sort of thing. But ultimately, the reason why Christians are in schools is what I was just talking about, right? The hope that they have <laughs> that there's something better. Reading the comments underneath Jane Caro's article it was interesting. There was plenty of people who, who, who agreed with Jane Caro. They had issues with Christian chaplains being in state schools. There was also plenty of people who weren't Christians, people who worked in schools going, actually, I know where you're coming from, but the school I work in is desperately underfunded. And the chaplain <laughs> just gets on with the job of helping our community. And you know what? They'd say things like, actually, I haven't found them too preachy. They've just been there to help. The problem <laughs> with Christianity is that Christians are going to Christian, right? Like, I get, I get, I get where Jane Caro is coming from. She's sort of saying, can't we have a secular alternative? And I reckon, in theory, sure. But there's something so compelling (laughs) about the story of God coming into the world to save it, to bring it to a better future, motivated by love, self-sacrificial love, that people just keep lining up for that stuff. We got a room full of people like that this morning. And we're like, okay, well, maybe it makes sense the nature of our society, that we don't have Christian chaplains in public schools. You're just going to go and find some other way to love people. (laughs) That's the problem. The problem is that there's just too many people captured by the idea of God's love for the world. They're prepared to go into state schools and work for peanuts, right? I don't know how you stop that. I just don't know how you stop that. It's a problem if you don't think it's a good thing. But thankfully, actually, you know, I think as many people out there who who might have questions about chaplaincy, for example, and I'm one of them, often (laughs) the story that's told is, well, my experience of it is that these guys are just trying to help. That's why there's sporting clubs, governments, health services, people lining up to put, and I'm just using chaplaincy as an example here because it's a good example, isn't it? Lining up to put chaplains back into organisations that, you know, for understandable reasons, they tried to get that kind of influence out of. Something about the Christian hope means that you can't stop it. (laughs) You just can't stop it. There's many ways to think about communion. We're going to take communion just now and I'll make sure that you've got your bits and pieces. Make sure I've got my bits and pieces. You know, we, we're well aware that it's a picture of Jesus dealing with what's wrong in our lives as individuals with our sin, with our brokenness. It's also a picture of the hope that we have. It's also a picture 
of a feast. <laughs> a feast to end all feasts. Where there won't be tears. Where there'll be health. There won't be death. There'll be suf- there won't be suffering. I'll drink and eat to that. (laughs) In uh, Corinthians, Paul says, that when we do this, we eat and drink until his return. After that point, we won't have to anymore. Because he won't just have returned. He will be indwelling. He will be fulfilling. Jesus, we're captured by your love. Thank you for the price that you paid to take history somewhere better. Lord, I pray that you will infill us with this great hope again as we eat and drink. I pray that those present, your body around the world, will continue lining up around the block to share that hope. Amen. Let's eat and drink. Thanks, Charlie.